questions and answers. The Bible doesn't have errors. Skeptics and even Christians argue that the Bible is a book written by humans and humans make errors. Therefore, we should expect that the Bible does have errors. However, God is perfect and God does not make errors and the Bible is God's word. So does the Bible have errors or not? Can we really trust the Bible in all that it teaches? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we will join Pat and Dr. Doug Potter as they discuss the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, does the Bible have errors? Skeptics and even many Christians argue that the Bible is a book written by humans, and humans make errors. Therefore, we should expect that the Bible does indeed have some errors. However, God is perfect, and God does not make errors, and the Bible is God's Word. So does the Bible have errors or not? Is this a significant issue? Well, to help us today is Dr. Doug Potter. Doug earned his master's and doctorate in apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He is a writer, teacher, and speaker on Christian theology and apologetics. He is committed to maximizing every opportunity to prepare the next generation of believers to know what they believe and, most importantly, why it's true. He is an author. He's written and published numerous books and articles, and he serves on the faculty of Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, Doug, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Hey, Pat. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Yes. Now, Doug, as we begin, explain to us, what is the doctrine of biblical inerrancy? Sure. There's probably a lot of misunderstanding with regards to this doctrine. A lot of people uh, kind of have the misunderstanding that we just have read through the Bible somehow or at some point in time and didn't find any errors, and therefore we pronounced it inerrant. But actually, it starts with God. And because God is perfect and God cannot create anything that's imperfect, and that includes not only his creation, but that includes his communication. And so beginning with God, God can't communicate anything that is imperfect. He can't communicate anything that is an error. He can't communicate anything that's a lie. He can only speak the truth. And that being the case, if God breathed out the Bible, granted through human beings, but breathing it out through human beings who are prophets and apostles, what they write down, what ends up under that divine inspiration has to be originally given air-free or without air. And that's basically what the doctrine or the, the, the view of, of biblical inerrancy is saying. Yes, and let's talk just a little bit about how God inspired the authors. Many think when, you know, you say he inspired the authors, he literally gave them the words to write or use them like a typewriter. What do we mean when we say God inspired yeah, it, the writers? Bit, yeah, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. You know, it may be the case that some parts of the Bible are kind of what we might call dictated. For example, the Ten Commandments, where it's very clear that, that it, it speaks metaphorically of God writing with his fingers the Ten Commandments and giving them to Moses. So there are definitely some portions of it. But I think that probably the best description you can go to in terms of what is inspiration is, is the Bible's. Uh, self-attesting to its own view of inspiration and what the prophets were under. And I think the key verse there is Second Peter 
chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, where it says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So here, Peter tells us that it starts with God, and God is speaking through the human prophet that they are moved by the Holy Spirit, so it's a cooperation with God in terms of writing what God wants to be written. And obviously, God, being all-knowing, all-powerful, able to do anything that is possible, can certainly work through the human prophet to make sure what is written uh, is exactly what God wants to be written. And so this is, and, and certainly the human author is using their vocabulary, they're using uh, their cultural setting, their phraseology, everything. So there's, there's nothing human that is removed from it, but it's along with or being moved by God that ends up with the divine product being inspired by God. And so this is really the process of working through in or with the human prophet to produce an air-free document or graphe, because if we could go to Paul, Paul adds to this in 2 Timothy 3, 16, that all scripture, this is the written document he's referring to, is inspired by God. And so ultimately, inspiration, and therefore ultimately inerrancy, ends up in a written document with regards to the scriptures. Yes, that Second Peter 1, verse 21 chapter, it says that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, that word means as wind gently blows into the sail of a ship and brings it to yeah. the direction it wants yeah, to go. Very good. Yeah, so God did not possess the speakers, you know, like spirit possession, like you see, you know, in the occult when they write down something. Right. The person right. completely loses their personality and they are possessed by this spirit that dictates, you know, they become totally someone else. That did not happen here right. with the biblical writers, as you're saying. They worked as you wonderfully stated, in cooperation with the Spirit of God, using their background, their culture, their language to communicate God's truth without error. Correct. Very good. Yes. Yeah. So that's why in each of the books we see from the different authors, there are different personalities and different styles of writing that come out. Absolutely. Yeah, you're going to have different genre of writing, different kinds of literature that is written. And for us to understand it and for us to interpret it, we, we have to recognize that fact. That's essential to recognizing what the Bible is and how it can be inspired by God. Because one of the things that we'll probably bring up in, in the course is, is dealing with the whole issue of truth. And truth is what applies to reality. And there are different ways that the Bible applies to reality that can be dependent on the literature that the author is writing in, meaning when he's writing poetry, it's going to apply in a different way than he's writing narrative or didactic teaching to us. It's just going to be a different kind of application, but it's an application to reality or to truth itself. Now, there are some say, well, inerrancy applies to the meaning of the text, but not necessarily to specific areas of history and science when the Bible is addressed in those areas. Uh, does inerrancy apply even to history and science? It has to. We need to distinguish the fact that, that when we deal with the issue of inerrancy, we mean that the Bible is wholly true in whole and in every part without error in anything that is affirmed or implied. And this is the key, that what the Bible teaches, what the Bible touches on, this is where inerrancy is actually comes into play. 
So only if the author affirms something historically or affirms something or teaches something with regard that overlaps the area of science, a person or a place or an event that takes place or something in cosmology with regards to creation or something like that, are we actually affirming that it, it's inerrant in those areas where it touches on those and where it teaches on those with regards to its affirmation? There are things recorded in the Bible that are false, and there are things recorded in the Bible that are immoral, that is, they're wrong. Satan tells lies in the Bible, and they're recorded in the Bible, but the Bible isn't affirming that lie as if it's true. It's just recording what the lie is, and the Bible re records evil acts. Cain kills Abel. It's not saying that, and it doesn't say anything there, whether it's right or wrong, it just says it happens. We know it's wrong, not only because the Bible tells us so, because morality itself uh, tells us that it's wrong, but the Bible is just recording it. So that distinction needs to be made as well. We're saying with regards to inerrancy that everything affirmed or taught is inerrant and true uh, and without error. Yes, and one of the important things to point out is that inerrancy applies to the original documents, not the copies, but the originals, what Moses wrote on, what the documents that Paul and Peter and John wrote on, the originals, not the copies. Yeah, that's a really key distinction and very important to make because you're right. Inerrancy is because God inspiring the author, only the original, only one that they wrote or under their what was written under their authority. In fact, we know that Paul, for example, example used a secretary, what we call an amanuensis, technically speaking, but it's under his authority. He would be dictating to an amanuensis or a secretary to what is to be written down. So it's under his authority. They don't actually have to be the one that does the handwriting. But it's that one which is the first one under the authority of the apostle or the authority of the prophet, which carries the notion of being inspired by God. And so it's only to these originals, which we have to admit, we do not have any of the autographers, which is the technical term for the original. We don't have any of those, but we do have many good copies. And yes, as you say, the copies we know do have mistakes in them. They do have errors introduced intentionally and unintentionally by scribe. We know them be, we, that they're there because we can compare and contrast them with ones that don't have those errors in them. So it does only apply to the autographers or the original, the one that is produced on the authority of the apostle and the prophet. Yes, and so the Bible we have today, some people may be surprised, is not necessarily inerrant. It is inerrant and inspired in as much as we are accurate to the original text. Yes, and the, and the key thing there is we can be very confident. We have very right. high confidence with regards to the reconstruction of the original text based on the copies, because obviously if you're copying from a copy or even copying from an original, it's still a copy. And the fact that we have so many of these manuscripts, I mean, in the, in the Greek alone, there's, there's well over 5,600 manuscripts and portions that we're able to reconstruct no other book from the ancient world has this number of uh, manuscripts that can be used to reconstruct the original. And when we do that, we end up with 100% of the text being represented. In fact, Dr. Geyser, my mentor, would say we actually have more than 100% of the text there. And that means we have 100% of the meaning, and we certainly have 100% of the doctrine uh, that is there being taught to us. So not having the originals is not really a disadvantage. We would not expect to have them given the ancient time period uh, how easily these can be destroyed over time and uh, just corroded over time, not intentionally destroyed, but just erode over time. 
but the numerous copies, and the early Christians were very concerned about copying it, and they were very accurate with regards to copying it and very diligent with regards to copying it and preserving it for us. And we have just these numerous manuscripts by which we can reconstruct the original with tremendous accuracy. Yes, we actually have 110% of the text, don't we? That's right. Yes, that's exactly right. We're trying to figure out what were scribal notes you know, that were added into the text and extra words or phrases that were added in by scribes hoping maybe to clarify or just taking notes uh, on the side and it got into the text. So we're actually trying to figure out what was the original and what things were added later. So actually, like you said, we do have the text. And and, and it's worth mentioning that there's really actually only two portions of the entire New Testament of what I would say have substantial text that is some would say it's extra, some would say it's included in there, and, that, and that's the ending of Mark and, and John chapter 7 or 8 with the woman that's, uh, that's caught in adultery, are, are really just in, in, not in some of the very early manuscripts, but is in some of the later manuscripts. Those are the only big portions of extra text that we really have to deal with. Yeah, and the discrepancies we have really don't affect any key doctrine. I mean, there's no manuscript out there that says exactly. Jesus did not yeah. rise from the dead or... We're, we're talking about spelling differences. We're talking about wording differences. We are not talking about, uh, again, anything significant affecting the meaning of the text itself. There's actually very few instances of where meaning is affected. And even there, as you've stated, we're not talking about any effect with regards to doctrine or anything like that. Yes. Now, where does the doctrine of inerrancy begin? I mean, some will argue that this is a fairly recent doctrinal position that has been created. I would argue that if someone were to say, hey, give me, give me your best argument for inerrancy, I would start as we started the program with God himself, the existence of God, that is, God must be perfect. And we know that not from reading our Bible, we know that by arguing in natural theology that God exists and exists in a certain way. And being perfect, God can only communicate what is perfect. I'm kind of just reiterating what we kind of said at the beginning of the program. So the notion that inerrancy is somehow new is, is just false. We can easily go back to the earliest Christians in the second century following the New Testament. And if you look at their quotes, and I can give you a few of them if you want, but what we've, we've got there is really a tight connection with regards to God's nature and with regards to God's Word being from God, being the utterances of the Holy Spirit or being from God, and the tie that they make entails what we mean by inerrancy. I would grant that the word itself, inerrancy, is is fairly new or fairly recent, but it's only developed as a result of keeping this tight connection that exists between God being perfect and Him inspiring His Word into Scripture itself. So it's an outworking of what we mean by inspiration in order to preserve that it is inerrant or error-free does not contain any mistakes with regards to it going through from God through the human prophet. And the early church recognized this. They may not have used the word inerrancy, but they have this very tight connection, and they have the concept of inerrancy present uh, very early in the, in the, from the birth of Christianity on. Yes, not only throughout the New Testament, but Christ himself preached the authority of Scripture and equates Scripture or the Bible, with the Word of God, or with, sometimes he just says, God states, or it is written. 
you're right. In fact, one of the one of the strongest verses that comes so close to inerrancy is John seventeen seventeen, where Christ Himself taught, "Sanctify them in the truth. Your that is God's word is truth." And this is very strong from the Savior in terms of Him recognizing that what existed in His day, what we would call the Old Testament, the sixty six books of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ Himself looked at as being. God's word and being completely true. And that's really what we mean by using the term inerrant, is that it is completely or wholly true in all that it teaches or affirms. Yes, so we could trace it all the way back to the Bible and also, you know, the early church fathers. For example, we could, one of the giants, of course, is Augustine, who said, and if the sacred and infallible scriptures say that in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, in order that it may be understood that he has made nothing previously. And so there, Augustine, referring not only to the Bible, but to the forefathers before him, Martyr, Irenaeus, and others, declares the Bible to be infallible or without error. Yeah, and there's another quote from Augustine that I really like uh, as well, and it's which he says that it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. But either the manuscript is faulty, or the translation is wrong, and get this, or you, that is the reader, have not understood. And that's a good dictum to follow with regards to exploring Bible difficulties today. It is not with regards to the prophecy of God, the prophetic model of God giving revelation through a human being. It has to do with a faulty manuscript, a wrong translation, or we just have not understood the text. Yes, uh, that's, you know, when you come to an alleged error in the Bible, uh, those are the three principles you want to follow. And, uh, you know, there are alleged contradictions or errors in the Bible. What do we do when we come to that and applying these three principles? Yeah, uh, that's it, is to basically apply these types of principles. And, you know, Dr. Geiser wrote a really good book on this called When Critics Ask. It was actually republished on the big book of Bible difficulties. And in there, he's got about 20 20 or so or more guidelines to handle Bible difficulties. And not only is the book dealing with a tremendous number of Bible difficulties, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, you've got literally uh, hundreds of Bible difficulties answered. And I think the key is the fact that we're going to run into these Bible difficulties, as you say, these alleged contradictions, alleged errors, and definitely uh, difficulties to deal with. And one of the things that we have to, to keep in mind is when we study the text itself, when we study the background of the author, when we study the cultural setting in which it was said, when we kind of take into a more deeper look at a lot of these difficulties, proposed solutions easily come to mind, and resolution easily comes up with intense study. So we're able to learn more about the background. And then all we have to do as Bible scholars is propose solutions that don't involve contradictions and errors with regards to the solution itself, and just keep an open mind that as we investigate further, we might solidify exactly what's going on with with respect to this particular difficulty and come, as Augustine said, to a better understanding of it, recognizing we didn't understand it, and now we do understand it, and his book, I think, is Dr. Geiser's book, is a good testimony to the fact that he investigated so many of these and came up with proposed solutions. And I've had personal conversations with him about a number of these and even didn't make it into the book with regards to what he think, thinks may be going on and, and a good solution to it, even, even uh, having after he had written the book. 
come up with things that are even uh, more certain with regards to certain difficulties. Yes, Augustine's dictum is a great principle to follow, that it's either the manuscript that's faulty, the translation is wrong, or we have not properly understood the text. A good example is that Isaiah 45, 7 in the King James, says, yep. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So we got a problem there. God is the author of evil <laughs> right. here. And so applying these three principles here, the manuscript, the translation, or we have not properly understood the text, uh, how do we approach something like this? Well, I think a better translation, at least in, in, the, in the one that I work from, uses the term calamity. Correct. And I think having to understand of God, there's a sense in which God can permit evil. And this is the notion of the fact that God is really the cause of everything in the sense that he permits it, but he's not the direct cause of evil. So having an understanding of God's nature is very important there. But with the emphasis there is, is God will allow or permit evil to take place, and it is out of that evil out of that calamity that he can bring good and can bring about his intention and his will in this world with regards to his people, in regards to us individually, and with regards to, obviously, what he is working and doing in the world concerning his kingdom and the gospel. Right. So there would be a matter of translation. It It could be. Well, the translation does help to clarify, but again, I think there's also the notion of the fact that God permits evil to take place in the world, only to the extent that he can and is able to bring good out of it, evil being a concomitant of creation itself and obviously free will, God has to allow this to take place. But he is not the direct cause of evil itself. Free will would be or a concomitant of things interacting in in our created world. Right. Okay, so in that case, it would be the translation and getting the proper understanding of that text. Yes, and in, in of God himself in terms of how he works and operates in the world. Yeah, okay. Now, Doug, you know, what does it mean when he says, you know, when you say that uh, God cannot err, therefore the Bible being the Word of God cannot err? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's really what I would put in the, in the classification of what I would call an argument of for inerrancy itself. And obviously there are different ways that you can argue for inerrancy, but I think it's pretty straightforward in the simplest argument, which, which I have to admit I take from Dr. Geyser, We know that God cannot err, and we know that God cannot err because we know the nature of God, not from the Bible, but we know the nature of God from natural theology, that he is absolutely perfect. So we're not arguing in a circle here. We are arguing from understanding that God exists and exists a certain way, as Paul tells us in Romans, from creation. We we reason from creation to the existence of God and that God is perfect existence and he is is invisible and has certain attributes that need to be attributed to him because of his perfection. That's kind of the first premise of reasoning to inerrancy. So we begin with the existence and nature of God. The second one is that the Bible is the Word of God, as you say, and it's the Word of God in the sense that it claims to be the Word of God, and it's also the Word of God in the sense that it proves to be the Word of God. Those are kind of two separate steps in that proposition. The Bible is the Word of God. It claims to be the Word of God, as we've read from Paul and Peter with regards to these claims, and throughout the Old Testament as well, saying God has said, God saith, and so forth. So it claims to be the Word of God. But how does it prove to be the Word of God? Here I would just appeal to the entire discipline of Christian apologetics, the entire subject of study of Christian apologetics, that concludes that the Bible is the Word of God. Dr. Geyser's famous 12 points, starting with God, 
reasoning through the resurrection, through miracles to the resurrection, to the reliability of the New Testament, and then to the resurrection, and then ultimately to the fact that Jesus teaches us about the Bible and that it is the Word of God. This is how it proves to be the Word of God, so it's primarily based upon our Christian apologetic for Jesus having risen from the dead and taught us about the Bible. Well, from 1 and 2, God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God. A simple deduction, therefore the Bible cannot err. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs> <laughs>